Paul Greenberg, author of the New York Times bestseller Four Fish and American Catch. And I'm Nick Mink, co-founder of the direct-to-consumer seafood company Sitka Salmon Shares. And what do we have in common, Paul? We like fish. That's right. And Paul and I have partnered to bring you an eight-episode series called Fish Talk. Each episode, Paul and I will trade off as hosts to take you on a journey from our coast to our kitchens so that we can better understand how fish get to our plates. So, Paul, what should listeners expect from upcoming episodes? Well, Nick, let's face it. For non-fishy people, fish are confusing. They're confusing to cook. They're confusing to clean. What's wild? What's farmed? All these different choices you have to make if you're going to eat fish in a responsible way. So on this podcast, we're going to talk to conservationists, scientists, chefs. At the end of each episode of Fish Talk, you will be a little less confused about fish. I couldn't agree more, Paul. All right, let's dive in. Earlier this summer, a lobster fisherman ended up being the bait, so to speak. We begin with breaking news and what could be the story of the year. A lobster diver nearly eaten alive by, get this, a humpback whale. So let's get right out to NBC10's Mike Manzoni, live in Wellfleet. Mike, how is he doing? Is he okay? His name is Michael Packard. He got home a couple hours ago from Cape Cod Hospital, only uh, amazingly with minor injuries. He was about 45 feet underwater this morning, lobster diving, when all of a sudden everything went black around him. He soon realized he was in the mouth of a humpback whale. <laughs> I just felt this truck hit me. Hit by a truck. I think actually that's the way a lot of lobstermen feel these days. And it's not just because of whales, though whales are a part of it, as we'll see later in the show. Suffice it to say that the art of finding, trapping, and bringing home live lobsters is getting more complicated every day, which is why we've chosen a particularly complicated way of cooking lobsters now. Hey, Nick, you got your lobster? I've got my lobster. He's, uh, or she, is sitting here looking at me. Yeah, so I got to get my lobster from the freezer. Actually, you know, I was looking into it because, as you know, people have been sort of in a twist about what to do about cooking lobster, cooking boiling lobster. Did you know it's actually illegal to boil a live lobster in New Zealand and I think now in Switzerland? Did you know that? I had no idea, Paul. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> um, I looked around, I talked to a few different people and asked, like, what's the best way to be sure that you're doing the least amount of pain for a lobster. So what they said was to put the lobster in the freezer for half an hour. Did you, you did the same, right? Yep. Both of my lobsters went in the freezer. I gave them 35 minutes just to be safe. All right. Well, I'm going to get my lobster from the freezer. Hold on just one second. All right. Take him out of a paper bag where he's been, or she, as you say, and not entirely motionless, but I think that's the idea is that they're, they're meant to be mostly stunned and motionless. And we're going to do now, what is called in the industry dispatching the lobster, which is one of the weirdest euphemisms I've ever heard. And I should say, you know, like all fishing and all eating of animals, this kind of thing really shouldn't be taken lightly. And we're trying to find the least painful way to deal with something of taking protein, wild protein from the sea. I was looking into this whole lobster pain thing, and uh, it seems like there's a little bit of a debate. There's a guy at the main lobster institute named Bob Bayer, and he said they can sense their environment, 
but they probably don't have the ability to process pain. So I thought, okay, that's that's probably good. But then, you know, in science, there's always a debate, right? So there was a study in the Journal of Experimental Biology that found that crabs avoided electric shocks, suggesting they can, in fact, feel pain. And the same professor said, I don't know what goes on in a, in a crab or lobster's mind, but what I can say is the whole behavior goes beyond a straightforward reflex response, and it fits all the criteria of pain. So, hmm, mysterious. I don't know. And then, you know, actually, I thought this was kind of a good quote from an anthropologist named Barbara King at the College of William & Mary. She said, you know, I'm not a biologist, but I think the preponderance of evidence suggests they can feel pain. And then she says, you know, whether we know or don't, it's our ethical responsibility to give them the benefit of the doubt and not put them into boiling water. So I think all in all, we're making the right choice here. Are you ready to dispatch? Yeah, I'm, I'm ready to dispatch this, this beautiful Maine lobster. So before our lobsters wake up, let's, uh, let's dispatch. I dispatched mine. All right, I'm, I'm going to dispatch mine. Hold on one second. All right, my lobster is dispatched. And into the boiling water, right, Paul? Is that our next step? Yeah, I'm turning up my boiling water, and let's put it in. Ready? All right, we're supposed to boil this until it turns bright red. So six minutes, we just said. Have you looked at this recipe at all? Uh, I've looked at the recipe. It's complex. The cool thing about this recipe is, you know, as we're going to see, lobsters are not easy to come by. I mean, it's definitely a really valuable thing that we have in our pot. And we're going to try and use every single piece of this lobster. I'm looking at the recipe that Evan Mallett sent us, and... He says, when the lobsters are cool enough to handle, remove the meat, being sure to harvest. Whoa, what's that? I'm removing the meat, like Chef Evan said. Oh, oh, <laughs> geez. All right, so you're, you're getting right on it. I did something really wrong. I was trying to clean this lobster like I would clean a, a bear dye crab. Oh, yeah, so that's, yeah, that's a mistake. So I've got all my tools here. I've got a lobster claw crusher. Here, I'm going to crunch it right in front of the mic there, so you can hear that. It must be nice, Paul, because I'm sitting here with a, two fingers and a hammer and a chef's knife. It's not going well. This is hard. Nick, it sounds like you're having some trouble there. Do you think you're going to be able to do this dish? No, I don't even think I'm going to be able to get enough lobster out of this claw and out of these tails for me to even be able to do this. So I think I might like... Are you bailing? The lobsters Nick and I are cooking on the show today come from Maine. But actually, not that long ago, lobsters were living a lot further south. In fact, if you were a lobsterman fishing in Long Island, you could make a pretty good living that way. That's what lobsterman John DeBellis had planned on doing, until things started to change radically. Hi, my name is John DeBellis. I am a former lobster fisherman who fished out of Oyster Bay, New York. I lobstered for just less than 20 years, up until 2000, and that was basically what most people would consider the end of lobstering on Long Island. So before we get to the end, let's talk a little bit about the beginning. Tell me what it was like to grow up on Long Island and to go into a life of fishing. Well, I grew up in uh, New York City, so my fishing opportunities were not too much good. But I moved out to Long Island when uh, I was a teenager, and I always loved the water. And I was always a recreational fisherman. 
So after high school and a little bit of college, I ended up becoming a commercial uh, fisherman. What did you like about lobstering? Well, it's, I would say, a very consuming kind of occupation. It really requires pretty much all of your physical as well as your mental concentration to figure it out. I started off from scratch. I didn't have any mentor or anything like that. I had to figure it all out for myself, which took quite a while. But I really enjoyed figuring out how they moved, how they migrated, experimenting to see what type of trap worked the best. And of course, when you have a great day of lobstering, I would have to say that that is the best feeling you could possibly have, to have done it all yourself. Describe, if you would, a great day of lobstering to me. The days that stick out in my mind would be probably from the middle of November up until New Year's because it would be very peaceful out on the water. There would be no one else out at that time of year except for other lobstermen. The wildlife was phenomenal. You'd see seals, you'd see loons and other seabirds, just very quiet, peaceful days. And the lobstering at that time of year is very good. Price is usually very good because of the holidays, and it was just a great way to make a living. I always felt that it was kind of a peculiar way of making a living where I was doing it. It wasn't like up and down East Maine. I was on Western Long Island. But there was a really strong tradition of lobstering on Long Island in general, though, right? Amongst the people who knew? Oh, there definitely was. There was actually a very, a very strong and successful fishery. So when did you first notice something changing in the fishery? Well, I would say that a lot of what is now known or conjectured about what happened up until the time that it happened, no one had any idea that there was any real problems in the sound. I mean, there was isolated pockets in mostly the extreme western sound every summer of these hypoxic events, which as far as I can determine, didn't actually ever kill any crustaceans, but they would cause them to move. They would move out of those areas where the water was depleted of oxygen. And sometimes, personally, that was a good thing for me because I had positioned my gear correctly. That could mean some very, very good fishing for me. Was it getting worse? I can't really say that I noticed that it was. The scientists that were tasked with determining the health of the fishery as far as I know, before the die-off, never had anything bad to say about the health of the fishery or the condition of the fishery. They were all saying the recruitment was excellent. So it hit rather suddenly. I would say that 1992 to 1998 were my best years. And then 1999 was markedly not as productive as the previous I would say seven or eight years had been. My catch rate was way down. I was still doing okay, but you know there weren't any like really big numbers or, or great catches or anything. It was just kind of like a steady pick. But I would always haul all my gear out of the water in, in October to clean it up, repair it, to do any uh, maintenance that had to be done, and then I would put it all out again in November. And some people would leave their gear in, and they wouldn't bother to take it out. And the guys who left their gear in were telling me that all the lobsters were dying or dead. 
And I thought, how can that be possible? You know, it's, all the lobsters are dying. That's never happened before. So when I put my gear out in November, sure enough, there were no lobsters. And the few lobsters that I was catching were in very, very poor condition. They were either dying or were dead in the traps. And I almost immediately had to lay off my, my two deckhands. And that was the end of my lobstering career. I kept a few traps in the water over the winter just to see what was going to happen. They never came back. And I honestly didn't stick around to find out whether or not they were ever going to come back. In retrospect, I don't believe they ever have come back in any kind of meaningful numbers. I was basically blindsided up until the fall of 1999. I thought I was going to be a lobsterman for the rest of my life. So I ended up actually going to an aptitude counselor, like, you know, the kind of people you go to see when you're in the ninth grade. Sure, yeah. Well, they have them for adults too. So I went to uh, one of those people and one of the areas that I scored highly in was uh, healthcare. And my wife was already a registered nurse, and she said, you know, you'd be really good at that. So I ended up going to school, and I became a registered nurse, and that was my second career. So what did you feel like during this whole COVID time? Were you under the gun pretty much from beginning of the uh, pandemic? Well, we were most definitely under the gun. It's a state hospital. Resources are scarce. Supplies and equipment are substandard. So uh, we were very poorly prepared for dealing with the initial stages of the epidemic. Mm. So we put our health in jeopardy and uh, we both uh, worked through the initial phase of the uh, pandemic. And then both my wife and myself retired in the end of May of uh, 2020. So what are you going to do with your retirement? My wife and I, we like to garden. So we do a lot of gardening. And also I do enjoy fishing as a recreational activity as well. And even more than that, because we have set a goal for ourselves, which is all, all the fish protein that we eat, I catch. So in a sense, you're still a commercial fisherman. You're just fishing for one market, which is your I'm house. always fishing for, that's right, a very limited market. Do you ever come across a lobster? No, I never have. I've never seen a lobster in the sound since I stopped fishing. So where did the lobsters go? In a word, north. And this has been a boom for small-scale fishermen in the Gulf of Maine. And it couldn't have come too soon. Our next guest, Carla Gunther, tells us Maine fishermen have had to deal with all kinds of problems before settling in on the lobster. I'm Carla Gunther, the chief scientist at the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries. And as I recall, you and the lobster have been crossing paths for a pretty long time. Yes. I started researching lobster my junior year of undergraduate school at Woods Hole. And we were basically we were on a DARPA project to help kind of discover the undetonated sea mines. Wait, where, wait, what back up, what's DARPA? Gosh, it's a government acronym for the Office of Naval Research Program. I'm actually not sure what DARPA stands for. Oh, so but this is like we're talking military interest yes. in the lobster. Oh my God. Yes. So what, what what did the Navy want with the lobster? They wanted to find undetonated mines because the lobster nose is an external organ. It's the two little small antennules in the front of their faces. We know a lot about how it sniffs and navigates its marine environment. 
So we were trying to program a robo lobster to navigate basically hydrodynamic and scent plumes in the water. Well, wait, so, a, okay, a robo lobster, <laughs> does that mean you're going to make, like, put like a little, like, metal control box on the top of, the, of a live lobster's head, and then you would be able to kind of steer them? Well... That's what I did so I could see how it was sensing its system. Mm -hmm. But a robo-lobster itself is actually a robot. It has wheels instead of legs. It's a little like can with all the robotics and computer programming inside this watertight can. And it has little chemical probes that could sense essentially rusting iron from the undetonated mines. Wow. They actually went and built this thing. Yeah. Yep. Oh, my God. Well, so the lobster has really given us a lot. It has. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to Maine, though. So you're, as yeah. Mainers say, you're you're from away, I Correct. guess, right? Not not really a true Mainer. But did, now do I have this right? Did you marry a Mainer? I did. <laughs> and, 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 and a fisherman to boot? Do I remember that correctly? You are correct. Yes. Oh, so you're deep in the pot. You're in the lobster pot. I am. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But your husband is a lobster fisherman or does he catch something else? He's a, a lobsterman. He's a halibut fisherman as well. And he plays with scallops. Oh, all right. Well, this is good. This is well-rounded. All right. Well, so this brings me to my next question, which is something that I've heard is that the main fishery is kind of lobster top heavy and that we've reached this point because a series of sort of historical fisheries collapses have left mostly lobster on the table. Do I have that right? So we we were kind of the land of cod, the land of plenty. Um, if you were to look at historical landings, cod did build the Northeast along with whaling. But here in Maine, as the codfish were going through a population collapse, lobster has been able to experience this sort of release in predation because codfish do eat juvenile lobsters. So cod's but, loss is lobster's gain. Correct. Hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. Simultaneously, there was this you know, warming of the water and there has been a thermal habitat expansion for lobster. So lobster was able to successfully settle as juveniles in deeper water. So they basically have the shallow waters all the way out to deeper water. So we have experienced basically a tenfold boom in population. Wow. So, I mean, are you saying that climate change has actually been kind of good for the Maine lobster? Uh, yes. Yes, really? indeed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, climate winners, geez. But now I've also heard that the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than perhaps any other body of water in the Northern Hemisphere at this point. And if that's true, are the lobsters going to end up in water that's too hot eventually? We think we're already seeing some of that for the juvenile lobsters around Portland and kind of the, the shallower areas around Portland, Casco Bay. That water gets very warm. It's highly stratified. And the sensitivity, that kind of sweet spot for the juveniles, they're just not succeeding, we think, as much to getting to settlement. So yes, and it, you know, if we were to follow the trajectory of warming water, that eventually the Gulf of Maine will probably temperature itself out of being the sweet spot for lobster. But I, we're actually pretty far away from that yet. So how far? Oh, it all depends. We don't know enough of the dynamics for the adult lobster yet. Seems like the vulnerabilities are going to be around the juvenile lobsters. There's projections around 15, 10 to 15 years, but still not a population collapse it just may mean that the fishery can't harvest as much as it's gotten used to harvesting. Because 
Our first guest on this show, a guy named John DeBellis, is a lobsterman in Western Long Island Sound, and he had been doing it for a number of years. And then 2000 rolled around, and there was just like a total and complete lobster bust, and he completely lost his life as a fisherman. I mean, could that happen in the Gulf of Maine? Fishermen losing their life as lobstermen? Yes, that can happen in the Gulf of Maine. Will it happen like it did in the Long Island Sound? Probably not. And the reason for that is because we probably won't have the anoxic situation that the Long Island Sound also had. They also had the really debilitated population from shell disease. And so once you have then this warming of water on top of those other things, anoxia, of course, getting worse with warmer water, we just won't experience, we have too much flushing, we have too much tidal exchange, too much everything else to, to have sort of that same trifecta of experience for our lobsters. But what we've done where the Connecticut and you know, Long Island fishermen haven't done is that we have become so economically bound and dependent on lobster. Our entire fabric is 80 to 90%. Our economy is connected to lobster. So we lose 10 lobstermen. We lose potentially a school in a one community. Now, as far as I understand, there are some other things facing Maine lobstermen besides climate change and besides potential shrinking of the habitat. What else is going on that's confronting these folks? Primarily, I think they're going to suffer regulatory issues before the lobster itself kind of collapses. So we have the endangered northern right whale here, and those regulations are the U.S. Marine Mammal Protection Act has basically no room for interpretation, or it's actually experiencing a lot of pressure from climate change. But the Marine Mammal Protection Act wasn't written in a time of climate change. It was only written to understand sort of direct human impact to an animal and its so population. Is, so, back, so back up a sec. So what is the direct human impact on right whales that concerns lobstermen? They're vertical lines for their traps. So the buoy lines are- a buoy line. About 15, 20 years ago, the first round of whale rules said that needs to be sinking rope. It cannot be neutrally buoyant. It needs to be sunken rope so that it sits along the bottom of the water so it doesn't ensnare a whale that is diving. And there have been you know, whale deaths. Whales do get entangled in all kinds of fishing gear. However, in recent history, more whale deaths have been attributed to climate change issues. They are changing their migratory patterns. They're having to swim further for their summer feed. So they are starving by the time they arrive in Canada now, which their summer feeding area used to be right here off of Maine, off of the Bay of Fundy. Their ability to reproduce and successfully calve is severely weakened by their reduced food. So we have a, a stressed animal population that's having a hard time reproducing while also potentially ensnaring in fishing gear. So I had heard, though, that there might be a solution to all this and that you could do like ropeless gear, just sink the traps and then not worry about it because you could find them using GPS. I mean, couldn't we just do that? In theory, we could. The challenge to that is the technology isn't all that developed. The way gear is configured in Maine, we don't necessarily have radio frequency that is reliable to the depths that these guys are fishing. And currently in Maine, it's illegal to fish without a line, without your gear marked. And so it's kind of a switch in culture to have to move towards this. That is confusing. Mm -hmm. So let's try and zoom out here. 
what is the future of the Maine lobstermen? I mean, in terms of trying to get out of this sort of top-heavy situation, I'm, is there a future in trying to eventually have a more diverse fishery in Maine? We, of course, here at Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, that's what we aspire to, is trying to figure out what's the regulatory path? How do you identify kind of ahead of time where any of the speed bumps are so that we can have a path towards transitioning to these warmer water species when they come here? The challenge to this is the timing by and large. You know, lobster, the population of lobster may give us a nice buffer of time to allow these other species to come up, establish themselves in fishable populations, maybe create the access and the licensing so that Maine can fish these species. But Having these expedited timelines on these external challenges, such as the whales, we might not be able to have time. We might not have those established southern species here in order to transfer. So instead, we're looking at what's really likely to not be a fishing future. It may be more of an aquaculture future or a construction or support marine transportation type of career path for the coast of Maine. Hmm. So who are the new arrivals coming into Maine waters? So the black sea bass that we hear people talk about, the squid, we, we've seen them, but they're certainly not in fishable numbers. We are seeing pogies, the menhaden species. Those are a good bait fish. We're seeing tuna, more and more bluefin tuna. And we have a rebounding scallop population inshore. It's currently not very easily accessed with a fairly limited entry program through a lottery. But we've seen great recovery, and this animal also seems to be pretty robust to ocean acidification. Hmm. So I don't want it to sound all terrible, but again, none of this will replace the hundreds of thousands of almost millions of dollars that are being brought into our communities by lobster. Before I introduce our next guest, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Ecosystems are complex. Buying responsibly caught seafood doesn't have to be. Sitka Salmon Shares delivers a monthly share of seafood to your door that's sourced with the health of our fisheries, oceans, and communities in mind. Learn more about their wild-caught Alaska seafood and the fishermen who caught it, and find expertly crafted recipes at SitkaSalmonShares.com. And if warming waters and whales weren't enough for Maine lobstermen, there's one more big issue on the horizon they'll have to contend with. Wind. Hi, I'm uh, John Jordan. I'm the captain of the Stormwalker, a 40-foot lobster boat, and I uh, fish out of Yarmouth, Maine and Portland, Maine in the wintertime. So, John, tell me a little bit, how did you get into lobstering in the first place? I began working on boats in the summertime in the end of high school and going to college. My grandparents lived on Shebeg Island, which is right off of Portland and Yarmouth. So I started, you know, doing it as a summer job and did it through summers through college and got out, said, oh, maybe I'll do it another year. Started interviewing for jobs, even went to Wall Street and interviewed. And the fellow that was interviewing me looked at my resume and he said, you know, this is pretty fishy what you got here because everything I'd done had been working on boats. I think he was a pent-up outdoorsman. He said, do you really want to do this? And I said, no, I kind of like what I'm doing now. So I left there feeling like that was what I wanted to do and graduated from a 18-foot flat bottom skiff named the Busta Move. And then I have a 40-foot Nova Scotia boat now that I fish year-round off the coast. And do you still like it? 
Yeah, I, I, I love it. It's got its challenges working with Mother Nature. To be outside and on the coast of Maine, it's I wouldn't trade it for anything. And yet right now you have a situation where you're finding yourself on the other end of an environmental debate because of what, whales? There are a few things happening at once, but whales are certainly a very big issue. There's been a, a very unfortunate downturn in the last four years of uh, right whale population. So I think everybody's very worried and wanting to act quickly to help the right whales rebound. So what exactly happened? I mean, is, is somebody getting sued? And, and what exactly do they want you guys to do? At the moment, there's been several lawsuits brought against NOAA, who's the federal regulatory agency that oversees the lobster industry, saying they're not doing enough to ensure that there's an acceptable risk of not entangling whales. And at this point, with an endangered species, any risk, it seems, is not acceptable. We haven't had an entanglement of a right whale documented in Maine since 2002. And that one was untangled and released. So I think the, our industry wants to focus more on what can we do to the gear now to make sure that the braking strengths are, are safe so that if a whale did become entangled and it, they could break the rope. Okay, so let's talk about the other thing that's pinching the lobster industry. From what I understand, people are looking at the Gulf of Maine as a possible wind resource. Yeah, we have a new project which is unfolding by Monhegan Island where an offshore floating wind turbine is going to be put into place. And there's on the docket another experimental wind array, which would look at placing another 16 windmills offshore. And a lot of the placement that's being mentioned as to where these windmills would go is squarely where scientists are saying that right whales migrate. So I think from the fishermen's perspective, it's confusing and frustrating when you're being told that you're your end lines that, you know, break at 1,200 pounds are too dangerous, but the chain from a windmill that the, each link of the chain is the size of a full-size pool table, that that's not a problem. So, <laughs> but of course, fishermen are frustrated by it, but I think we're right in the first stages of, of people trying to come together and, and figure out along with what's best for the whales, what's best for green power, and, and how do the fishermen live <laughs> within all of this. A lot of guys look at those two things coming at once and just feel a little overwhelmed by the whole thing. What's your larger concern about wind farms vis-a-vis -vis the industry itself? Like, Is there a risk that all this wind development could actually upset the lobster fishery? Well, we don't really know exactly what the effect is of high power lines running across the bottom. We know that placing five to 700 foot tall windmills offshore with chain running off, you know, 1,000, 1,500 feet in each direction is going to take a lot of territory away from fishermen. And it will affect migration of wild species. We just don't know how. So from a fisherman standpoint, we don't like not knowing what something's going to do to a resource we care about. We're all for green power. Is this really the only way we can do it? Are there solar possibilities? Could we fix windmills on the thousands of exposed rocks and ledges on the coast of Maine? The only reason that they're going for the floating windmills at this point is because the property owners on the coast that put a lot of money in their real estate don't want to look at windmills. So I think the effort is to push it off farther. But you know, it feels a lot like one of mankind's oldest tricks in the book is push it off farther into nature. And 
This is really one of the last wild spaces. So it's something we're pretty concerned about. I mean, a lot of people are saying that maybe 50 years down the line, we don't necessarily have to have a lobster industry on the coast of Maine. Maybe it could be a service industry that's attending to the needs of a wind farm. I mean, what do you think of that? Well, there's a lot of different jobs which people can do, but I think to discount what's 150-year history, really building a sustainable fishery and one of the first on the planet and not give it the respect it deserves is really short-sighted because small communities, families have worked literally for generations to build this. It's all small boat fishing. It's not big corporate enterprises. It's it's generally small family businesses. You know, there's 5,500 licensed fishermen on the coast of Maine, and it's all one license holder, each on one boat. And it's multi-generational, and it's grandfathers teaching grandchildren. It's something we take care of and we're proud of. So to simply say you can walk away from it and it doesn't matter, just doesn't fit with the lives that have been spent building it. So it's really hard to break down the lobster problem, almost as hard as it is to break down an actual lobster. And speaking of which, Nick went a little Midwest with his lobsters and ended up throwing them on the grill with some brats. But I'm sticking around to work through this recipe with New England chef Evan Mallett. My name is Evan Mallett. I am the chef and owner of Black Trumpet in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And we have built our reputation sourcing local food from one of the great fisheries in our country, in the Gulf of Maine, and with local farms as well. Now, a lot of people, when they think of New Hampshire, they don't really think of it as a coast. We pride ourselves on very efficient use of all 16 miles of coastline. 16, that, one six. Yeah, we stretch it a little bit, but yeah, approximately 16 miles. All right, so listen, let's get going on this dish here. Now, we're cooking lobster. The show is about lobster, but this dish you've put before me, and not an easy dish, I might add. First of all, pronounce the name for me. The name is Lacarse i Baffi, and uh, literally translated from Italian, it means lick your mustache. Lick your mustache. But one thing you notice about this thing that is essentially a lobster dish, there's a lot of stuff in here that's not lobster. You know, I have a friend here named Katie Baldwin, who is a longtime summerer in Maine and has cooked a lot of lobsters. I have been to a lobster cookout with you where, as I remember, there was just lobster in a rock, right? How does that work? Well, you just boil the lobster in a big pot on the beach, ideally. And then when they're done, you tip out the pot onto the beach and everyone comes, grabs their lobster and they find their favorite rock and they smash it up. And they just, so it's just the recipe is one lobster, one rock, basically. And it's a little butter. And a little butter. They, you know, when you're in Maine and you eat lobster, it's just a very pure thing. Why mess with perfection? I see. And make no mistake, Katie, while she has some predilections against the cooking method we're using today, she is going to eat lunch with me after this is all over. Right, Katie? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where in Maine does Katie vacation? Deer Isle. Oh, great. I think that, you know, living where I do or where my restaurant is located in Portsmouth, one of, one of the things you see a lot of in our area is the lobster as the center of the plate ingredient. In many cases, the only ingredient in a dinner or lunch. It's wonderful that we celebrate this incredible ingredient that we're lucky enough to have historically in very profuse numbers. But right now, we're looking at a different future for lobster. and Its population is diminishing and moving elsewhere. We have to be thinking about the 
best way to celebrate lobster while also recognizing uh, that we don't have as much of it in the future. All right, so let's maximize our lobster. I've done what you told me. First of all, we very mercifully put it in the freezer for half an hour. We dispatched it with a knife. We put it in the boiling water for six minutes. We pulled it open, ripped it apart. My co-host, Nick, had to drop off because he's from the Midwest. He just continue. <laughs> continue. I'm here. I'm the survivor because I have eaten my share of lobster. So I tore it apart. So I beat the crap out of the lobster shell. It's been boiling for about an hour. So let's let's do this dish. What are we doing here? Well, you've got the stock made. Have you cooked your pasta yet, Paul? I have not. The water is boiling. What do you call this pasta? How do you pronounce it? Pacera? Pacheri. Okay. And should I put it in now? Drop it now. And we always like to salt the water just a little bit as well. I did. I did salt it. All right. So we've got the pasta boiling. All right, right. now what? My pan is hot. Okay, then you want to put whatever fat that you're using, whether it's oil or butter. I've got my cutting board here, and I've got some garlic that I'm just chopping up, as well as some shallots. Shallots can be sliced. They don't have to be minced, but the garlic needs to be minced pretty small. Okay, that is done. And actually, I I threw mine in. Okay, so give that a good stir. And now you want to drop the clams in, Paul. All right. And what about that kale? And then the kale also, right now, you want it to start absorbing the flavor of the garlic and the and the shallots. All right. So I'm putting the kale in, right? Yep. And just a little pinch of salt. Okay. And now this is where you want to make sure you have a well-ventilated kitchen because uh, <laughs> we don't want your beautiful kitchen to catch fire. So, Well, I'll do my best. It could set off the smoke alarm. We'll see. All right. Well, we have in New Hampshire, we're one of the few states that has Strega. Were you able to find Strega? Strega. Beautiful. All right. Have you done any flambéing on your podcast before? No, this is our first flambé. I don't want to be the guy who takes off your eyebrows. You know, that's okay. I've got, you know, I'm already partnered up. I don't need my eyebrows anymore. (laughs) I love it. All right. So, Um, all right. So, and am I going to drop a match into there or what what are we going to do? If you have a, a lighter, I recommend like a longer handled lighter. Well, what I was going to do is I was going to, I have a lighter, but I'm going to light a toothpick and then drop the toothpick in. Is that all okay. right? Yes. Yes. All right. Are we ready to go? Should yes, I do it? You put it in the pan first. Yep. And then you're going to light it, right? Uh, it didn't light. Ooh. <laughs> this is exactly what I was worried about. <laughs> oh my goodness. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Totally fine. <laughs> You know, we say in journalism, that's what you call good copy. It is good copy, man. Wow. People people love a professional flame. That one was, you know, somewhere in that dangerous gray area between professional and amateur. But that's right. All right. Now what? You handled it very well. I'm impressed. So now you're going to add the wine and you're going to let the alcohol cook off from the strega and the wine. Lovely. I love the way this smells, by the way. Good, good. You've got your lobster stock, right? Yes. And how much am I putting in? About a cup. Okay. Now that you've cooked off the alcohol, you really want to crank that flame up and get that lobster stock to a boil. Okay. All right. Yep, it's boiling. All right. Okay, great. So that's going to simmer for just a minute. And should I should I put the top on? With the clams to open, yes. You want the top on to ensure that they get fully seasoned in there. All right, good. My pasta is getting near done. What do you think I should do? Strain it now, and you want it al dente. Because we're going to warm it together in the sauce, right? Exactly so. right. When we're ready to serve, it'll all go back into the pan. And Great. now and what? Now, now we're adding our squid and the, okay. and, the, and the cream. 
All right, now I got the so the lobster is in pretty big chunks. Like I have the whole tail. Should I chop it up a bit? Yes. Yeah. The tail is a lot of food, so you definitely want to chunk that up into bite-sized pieces. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. Okay, now what? Well, we're pretty much done. We're ready. I can't wait to see this in a bowl. You have a bowl ready to go? All right, and I should probably use not a slotted spoon because I want all this stuff, right? You want all the goodies, yes. But this green gunk I have, I have this green stuff. What am I oh, going to do with that? I'm glad you harvested that because, so this is for extra credit. You take that with some of that delicious olive oil yeah, and you can mix the tamale, which I've always been told is essentially like the, the functioning liver of a lobster with a fork. And you can then mix in a little bit of roe if you were lucky enough to get some of that. We would normally make a butter out of that called coral butter. Oh, interesting. And that's an old Yankee tradition. All right. I think we should eat while it's hot. Katie, you want to bring your plate over here? Hi, Katie. The pasta has amazing flavor. Isn't it great? Yeah. Mm. One of my favorite pastas. Mm, so good. I'm going to have a little wine with this, to tell you the truth. A pecorino. Oh, perfect. Oh, perfect. You want some wine? Katie's going to have some wine, too. Uh, what a great choice. All right. Salute. Salute. So best case scenario, 50 years down the line, Gulf of Maine, fisheries. What do you see happening? Where's our lobsterman? I don't think we'll be eating a lot of lobster because we want to acknowledge that climate change is forcing a population swing. But at the same time, we don't want our economy that's built on lobster to crash. And we want to support those lobstermen. I think it's, it's going to be necessary for us to continue to purchase lobster very thoughtfully and be willing to pay a little bit more for it, but to use the whole lobster. That means the roe, the tamale, the shells to make the stock and the bisque, and to be thoughtful about how much lobster we're eating at a time, because you know we don't need a lot. It's a very rich source of protein. If we moderate that somewhat, then we can make other things that are doing well. The focal point of the plate and lobster then becomes a flavor accent. So that's it in a lobster shell. The meat, the roe, the tamale, and well, this episode of Fish Talk. We'll be back to take another fishy problem on in our next episode. Nick Mink here. Here's your Fish Talk fish tip for lobster. You know those little claws at the bottom of your lobster, those kind of spindly things that a lot of people just toss away? Those are actually called walking legs, and they have a lot of good meat on them. And how you get that meat out is once the lobster's cooked, you pluck those legs off and you roll over those legs with a rolling pin. The meat will come right out. And at that point, you can just throw them into a lobster roll, put them in a chowder, or just dunk it in butter and eat it right there. And that's your Fish Talk Fish Tip. Experience the real-life struggles of small-scale fishermen in the new documentary, Last Man Fishing. Narrated by best-selling author Mark Bittman, the film explores the growing tensions between corporate interests and small-scale fishermen. Featuring conservationist Carl Safina and author Paul Greenberg, Last Man Fishing calls to question the ethics of the seafood industry and its impact on fishermen and the ocean. Watch it now on iTunes, Apple TV, or YouTube. Learn more at lastmanfishing.com.